My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the January 2022 edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to discuss is on neuroendocrine tumours, what the gastroenterologist needs to know. Neuroendocrine tumours are more common than we might think, with an annual incidence of 7 to 8 per 100,000. The most common primary sites are the gut and pancreas. In this issue, Kahn and colleagues provide a comprehensive overview. There are multiple tumour types. Diagnostic delay is common, as symptoms can be similar to, for example, irritable bowel syndrome. The authors helpfully discuss the clinical features and investigation when neuroendocrine tumours are suspected, including biochemistry, which isn't generally helpful to screening, CT, MRI, nuclear medicine and endoscopy. Diagnosis is by histology. Treatment requires a comprehensive workup and multidisciplinary team discussion. Tumour resection is usually advised for local nets. Long-acting somatostatin analogues are the treatment of choice for unresectable low-grade nets. There are multiple other treatment options for more extensive disease. Outcome is generally good, influenced by tumour site, size and spread at diagnosis. Appendiceal nets have the best prognosis. Gastroenterologists have a key role to play in the whole pathway, including, in particular, the long-term control of gut symptoms. This is a very comprehensive update. It's well worth reading and enjoying and listening to the accompanying podcast. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to bowel cancer screening workforce issues, really developing the endoscopy workforce for 2025 and beyond. The demand for bowel cancer screening is expected to continue to increase, although there is very little data to inform how this will best be delivered. In this issue, Ravindran and colleagues report national data on the clinical time spent by endoscopists on screening and on their future career intentions. It does make interesting reading. There were 578 respondents. Most consultants had one PA per week for screening and would be happy to take on more if they could relinquish outpatient clinics, acute medical, stroke surgical on call and ward cover. Of note, a number of endoscopists were considering giving up colonoscopy in the next few years. By complex data modelling and based on future projected numbers of colonoscopies, the authors predict the need for a significant increase in the numbers of screening colonoscopists and time that they can spend doing colonoscopy within their job plan by 2025. It's worthwhile working through this the data challenges to think creatively about all aspects of this service. There are some suggestions in the paper, and there's an excellent accompanying commentary, colonoscopy in the post-COVID-19 era. The third article I'd like to highlight 
is from the Joint Advisory Group on Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, JAG, and it's a framework for managing underperformance in gastrointestinal endoscopy. This is an important topic. Patient safety is fundamental to high-quality clinical care. There are multiple factors which impact on this, including clinician performance. It's challenging to manage when the performance falls below the desired minimum standard acceptable for patient care. In this issue, Ravindran and colleagues report the JAG framework for managing underperformance. There are many issues discussed. This includes strategies to aid detection through performance data, self-reporting, feedback, specific incidents really that go through the governance process and the role of appraisal. There's a helpful table of causative factors which include extrinsic factors such as patient case misks, overbooked lists, staffing and equipment. There are four steps to manage. Verify underperformance. Identify additional causative factors. Provide support and reassess. There are some useful guidance notes and figures in the document under each of these headings. It's obviously important that the process is managed with sensitivity and professionalism. The guidance is helpful and pragmatic and could be applied to many other areas with the intent of supporting individuals and teams to provide safe and high quality care. The next article I'd like to highlight relates to the side effects of drug treatments for gastroesophageal reflux disease, current controversies. It's really important for us to know about the side effects of commonly used drugs such as PPIs and H2 receptor antagonists, which are used extensively to treat gastroesophageal reflux disease. In this issue, Dar and colleagues discuss the evidence for reported side effects, most of which are associations rather than confirmed as causal. PPIs have been associated with osteoporosis, kidney injury, dementia, micronutrient deficiency, infections including Clostridium difficile and gastric cancer. H2 receptor antagonists have been associated with tachyphylaxis, hip fractures, gynecomastia, impotence and headaches. More recently, in 2019, contamination of H2 receptor antagonists with N-nitrozodimethylamine, a potential carcinogen, has led to the withdrawal of some of these drugs. All this is discussed in detail. The conclusion is that the drugs are pretty safe, but to me, this article does reinforce the importance of reviewing a patient's medications regularly for efficacy and consideration of toxicity, even if it's not common. I'd like to finish with a review on the recent advances in liver transplantation. So liver transplantation is life-saving with one and five-year survival rates of 1970%. In this issue, Burke and colleagues discuss recent advances. Organ demand continues to exceed supply. 
There are useful sections on new opt-out systems for organ donation, which have been rolled out in the UK. Organ utilisation, including normothermic machine perfusion to enable better assessment and preservation of grafts. And a new UK national system for organ allocation. There's a detailed discussion of pre-operative optimization, that's prehabilitation, to reduce waiting list mortality and improve outcome following transplantation. This includes nutritional and psychological input and exercise. Novel indications for liver transplant, including alcoholic steatohepatitis, its most severe and acute on chronic liver failure, now accepted as a distinct clinical entity, are discussed. There is considerable interest in how best to optimise post-transplantation management, which includes identification and management of potential modifiable risk factors such as hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, obesity, diabetes, renal dysfunction and cardiac and cerebrovascular events. Further work is required to identify which patients may safely discontinue immunosuppression long-term and how to deliver the optimal post-liver transplantation management. This is a useful article. It's useful to work through and think about how the survival rates being very good should be accompanied by consideration of these many different factors which could further improve outcome longer term. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter, listen to our regular podcasts and take part in the Frontline Gastroenterology debates. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening.